Good evening, and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. I have to do more research to actually plan and do a show on The Third Man. And so tonight, we're going to talk about... We're just going to talk about film noir. Why do we love it? Why The term film noir, it's a French word. Noir. Say that five times fast. Think of all the people who were in film noir. Dorothy Malone, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Edward G. Robinson more than once. Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck more than once. Think of the situations, the colors, the cinematography. Film noir. This is the month of November. Noir November. There's a lot to be said about film noir. How does it continue? Where do we see it in the next 20 years? Noir, a noun, a genre of crime film or fiction categorized by cynicism, fatalism, and moral ambiguity. His film proved that a Brit could do noir as darkly as an American. From the Maltese Falcon to Double Indemnity, Touch of Evil, The Big Sleep, don't tell Eddie Mueller. There's neo-noir, art noir, tech noir, western noir. There's even noir furniture. Film noir. Noir is the French word for black. Marvel Noir, <laughs> Noir, a collection of crime comics. Gun Noir. There's even music Noir. But at the heart of it, it's about film Noir. Mm. There's so much to be said about this, so much to be learned. I know. Here we go. Film noir is a cinematic term used primarily to describe stylish Hollywood crime dramas, particularly those emphasize cynical attitudes and sexual motivations. The 1940s and the 1950s are generally generally regarded as the classic period of the American film noir. Film noir of this era is associated with a low-key black and white visual style that has roots in German expressionist cinematography. Many of the prototype stories and much of the attitude of classic noir derive from the hard-boiled school of crime fiction that emerged in the United States during the Great Depression. The term film noir or French for black film, literal, or dark film, closer meaning, was first applied to Hollywood films by French critic Nino Frank in 1946, but was unrecognized by most American film industry professionals of that era. Cinema historians and critics define the category retrospectively. Before the notion was widely adopted in the 1970s, many of the classic film noir were referred to as melodramas. Whether film noir qualifies a distinct genre is a matter of ongoing debate among scholars. Film noir encompasses a range of plots. The central figure may be 
a private investigator, the big sleep, a plainclothes policeman, the big heat, an aging boxer, the setup, a hapless grifter, night of the night in the city, a law-abiding citizen lured into a life of crime, gun crazy, or simply a victim of circumstance, DOA. Although film noir was originally associated with American productions, the term has been used to describe films from around the world. Many films released from the 1960s onward share attributes with film noirs of the classic period and often treat its convention self-referity. Some refer to the much latter-day works as neo-noir. The cliches of film noir have inspired parodies since the mid-1940s. And we talked about that the other day. The parodies. The paradox. Marlena Dietrich, often an actress frequently called upon to play a femme fatale. Mm. The director Michael Curtis, often stylized to make film noir. Billy Wilder, who has directed so many noir films. The literary, the literary influence on film noir was a hard-boiled school of American detective and crime fiction, led in its early years by such writers as Dashiell Hammett, whose first novel, Red Harvest, was published in 1929, and, Gems and James M. Kane, whose postman, the postman Always Rings Twice, appeared in five years later and popularized in pulp magazines such as Black Mask, the classic film noirs, The Maltese Falcon, the Glass Key were based on novels by Hammett. Kane's novels provided the basis for double, double indemnity, Mildred Pierce, The Postman Always Rings Twice, and Slightly Sacred, Slightly Scarlet. Raymond Chandler, who debuted as a novelist with The Big Sleep in 1939, soon became the most famous author of the hard-boiled school. Not only were Chandler's novels turned into major Noirs, Murder My Sweet, adapted from Farewell My Lovely, The Big Sleep, and Lady in the Lake. He was an important screenwriter in the genre as well, producing the scripts for Double Indemnity and The Black Dahlia and Strangers on a Train. These films we're going to look at later on down the line. Film noir, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? You know what it means? Unpleasant dreams.
Good evening, and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast, Noir November. Why did I play that? Because tomorrow is Veterans Day. That is from HBO's origin story, Perry Mason. Matthew Matthew, uh, Reese as Perry Mason. And Perry Mason was a World War I veteran. But at that point, it was called the Great War. It wasn't called World War I until after World War II. And so tonight on the Dr. Seuss Film Podcast, we're going to talk about noir. Noir films. But also the TV shows. You know, Perry Mason, 2020. Isn't that hard to believe? Falls right into the noir context. Perry Mason is this war veteran. He is working as a private detective for John Lithgow's character. It was... I was blown away by it. I had, I had been told about it. I had caught it. And I, and I just couldn't let go of it. it was, it's such an amazing show. And it continues because season two next year. Although due to COVID, we don't know. Mm. It falls right into the noir. I mean, it's perfect for HBO. Matthew Reese as Perry Mason, a private investigator. Juliet Rylance as Della Street, the loyal and driven legal secretary of E.B. Jonathan. Chris Chalk as Paul Drake, a beat cop. Shia Winningham as Pete Strickland, Mason's work partner. Tatiana Mazzalani as Sister Alice. John Lithgow as Elias Bichard E.B. Jonathan. So this takes place in 1932. Los Angeles during the Great Depression. Perry Mason is a down-and-out private investigator struggling with his trauma from the Great War and being divorced. He is hired for a sensational child kidnapping trial and his investigation within the major consequences. It dives into the client and his city itself. This is film noir at its best, and he is a veteran. Now, there is also another, uh, there is a film. Now, people have said, is this noir? Is it, is it mystery? Is it crime noir? Let's call it crime noir. And I'm talking about Key Largo. And Key Largo, in fact, um, let's go into it. Released in 1948, Bogart and Bacall. This was their last film together. Army veteran Frank McLeod, Humphrey Bogart, arrives at the Hotel Largo in Key Largo, Florida, visiting the family of George Temple, a friend who served under him and was killed in the Italian campaign several years before. He meets with the friend's widow, Nora Temple, Lauren Bacall, and father, James played by Lionel Barrymore, who owns the hotel. Because the winter vacation season has ended and a hurricane is approaching, the hotel has only six guests. Dapper Toots, Harry Lewis, Boris Curley, Thomas Gomez, Stoneface Ralph, William Hada, 
Servant Angel, Dan Seymour, attractive but aging alcoholic Gade On, played by Academy Award winner for this performance, Claire Trevor, and a sixth man who remains secluded to his room. The visitors claim to be in the Florida Keys for fishing. Now that sixth man is, of course, Edward G. Robinson. Now, I highlight this and Perry Mason because these are two veterans of, of two wars. I also, last night we talked about Devil in a Blue Dress and how John, uh, Denzel Washington's character in that film is also a war veteran. And the, the job of a private investigator, investigator kind of falls within the perfect context for them to work. Because when you've come back from a war, and I don't know from personal experience, but I've heard it from people within my family, from friends of mine, you don't want to be around people. You do, but in, in small amounts. Some people have PTSD because of the war. Some have, you know, they used to call it shell shock before they called it PTSD. And Perry Mason's character really suffers from it. And he's always trying to fight out of it. I talked about Perry Mason back in September, how impressed I was with it. I'm still impressed with it. That is television at its best. So much so that it's, it's like watching a, a motion picture chopped up into episodes. And we got to give credit to Matthew Reese for playing Perry Mason. And yes, it does show him become the lawyer that we all know. But he first starts out as this private investigator trying to solve the murder of a child. And then we have Key Largo. Key Largo, Frank McLeod, played by Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart was actually in the Navy. And that's how he got wounded. I think something happened, an explosion or something. And that's why he talked with the lisp. A lot of people don't know that. And in fact, if we look it up, you know, um, Humphrey Bogart played a lot of veterans. I mean, you think about it, you know, he played, uh, if we can look for them. Oh my goodness. So many, so many am- amazing films from Humphrey Bogart. That's probably why he's one of the greatest of all time. You know. I want to get it right, the ones that I find here. Okay. Across the Pacific, Action in the North Atlantic, Passage of Marceline, yeah, and of course, Key Largo. Now, Humphrey Bogart, what's interesting is, you know, and he was not your quintessential leading man, but he really... He tore down those walls. He tore down those walls. I mean, he's he is probably one of the most iconic film actors of all time. And if I can find... Ah, here we go. You know, because you always want to get things right. Hmm. Let's find it. 
you know, but yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to celebrate our veterans today. They're very important. Mm. With no viable career options, Bogart followed his passion for the sea and enlisted in the United States Navy in the spring of 1918 during World War One. He recalled later at 18, war was great stuff. Paris, sexy French girls, hot damn. Bogart was recorded as a major sailor who spent most of his sea time after the armistice ferry troops back came back from Europe. He may have received his trademark scar and developed his characteristic list during his naval stint. There are several conflicting stories. In one, his lip was cut with shrapnel when his ship, the USS Leviathan, was shelled. The ship was never shelled, however. It is believed that Bogart was not at sea before the Amstis. Another story held by longtime friend Nathaniel Benchy was that Bogart was injured while taking a prisoner to uh, Postmouth Naval Prison in Kittery, Maine. While changing trains in Boston, the handcuffed prisoner reportedly asked Bogart for a cigarette. When Bogart looked for a match, the prisoner smashed him across the mouth with the cuffs, cutting Bogart's lip, and fled before he was recaptured in prison. In an alternate version, Bogart was struck in the mouth by a handcuff loosened while freeing his charge. The other handcuff was still around the prisoner's wrist. By the time Bogart was treated by the doctor, a scar had formed. David Niven said that when he first asked Bogart about his scar, however, he said that it was caused by a childhood accident. Goddamn doctor, Bogart later told Niven. Instead of stitching it up, he screwed it up. According to Niven, the stories that Bogart got the scar during the wartime were made up by the studios. His post-service physical did not mention the lip scar, although it is noted many scars when actress louise brooks met bogart in 1924 he had scar tissue in his upper lip which brooks said bogart may have had particularly repaired before entering the film industry in 1930 brooks said that his lip wound gave him no speech impediment either before or was it after mended so yeah there's mystery behind that but he was in fact in the navy oh my goodness perry mason and Key Largo. You know, we could talk about other films about war, but they have to fall within the film noir context. And so I thought these are perfect, you know. And I think all of us have seen Key Largo. It's black and white. Directed by John Huston. You know, Bogart and John Huston made a lot of films together. Um, Claire Trevor won her first Academy Award, her only, for her performance of Gay Dawn, um, trying to sing in Key Largo. Key Largo is all about situations, you know, everyone is under the the madness and the capture of Edward G. Robinson. Edward G. Robinson was such a great actor, didn't get a lot of credit that he deserved, but he played that menacing gangster so well. And then you got Bogart, Frank McCloud, who is trying to be the, the good guy. But he's got to figure out, how do I get one over on these bad guys? You know, he's got Lauren Bacall looking at him like, what are you going to do? Lionel Barrymore's character, the father, just looks like he is just out of time. So many different situations are going. In fact, there are two versions of the end of Key Largo, and I won't spoil it for you because I want all of you, this is New Orleans, November, curl up and watch 
Key Largo. You know, um, it, it's always interesting when you have in these situations war veterans opposite gangsters, and the gangsters are basically cowards in this instance because they know they can never measure up. As for Perry Mason, Perry Mason has so many demons, and you can see them. And Matthew Reese plays him so brilliantly. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, that I hope he wins an Emmy for this performance. I This is probably the one show that I'm looking forward to. That and The Witcher. But The Witcher for different reasons. But back to the noir aspect of Perry Mason. Perry Mason is so well done. And that is a testament to its producers and HBO. HBO really knows how to roll it out. And they've done this with Perry Mason. You know, a lot of us were aware of Raymond Burr's Perry Mason, but that's before my time. But it did continue in the 80s and 90s as specials. And then here is Matthew Reese giving us an origin story of Perry Mason, how he at first wasn't really a lawyer. He was a private investigator. Brilliant. And Perry Mason and Frank McLeod of Key Largo have something in common. They are war veterans, as did Ezekiel from Devil in a Blue Dress, which we talked about last night. These men as private investigators. Could this be the perfect job? They don't have to deal with people. They just have to watch them. They are their own boss. They report to someone, but they're paid under the table. They're not paid by, you know, they don't clock in every day. They don't have an insurance plan. So the money, when they get the money, that's it. Especially, it doesn't matter what kind of a case it is. I bring up Key Largo also because it's such a beautifully photographed film. You, I mean, you can't, you can't get any better than that. And... It is telling because it is it is um, Bogart and Bacall, their last film together. I don't think they ever thought, you know, that they had, you know, they had the limited time that they had because, you know, Bogart ended up dying of throat cancer. Um, they made so many great films together. But for me, Key, there's something special about Key Largo. If you've ever seen the ending, you'll know why. And that's where the cinematography comes into play. Directed by John Huston. Screenplay by Richard Brooks and John Huston. Based on the play of 1939 Key Largo by Maxwell Anderson. Cinematography, Carl Freund. Mm. It's just an amazing film. And, you know, when it's John Houston, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, this is interesting. Robinson had top billing over Bogart in their four previous films together. Bullets or Ballots, 1936. Kid Gallahan, 1937. The Amazing Clitter House, 1938. And Brother Orchid, 1940. But the situation switched for the billing in this final film. In at least one trailer for the film, however, Rob 
Edward G. Robinson is billed above Bogart in a list of actors' names at the end of the pre- of the preview, and photographs of z- exist of Robins- Edward G. Robinson being billed above Bogart on some theater marquees. In the film itself, and in posters, Robinson's name is between Bogart and Bacall's, but slightly higher than the other two. In some posters, Robinson's picture is subsequently larger than Bogart's, and in the foreground, but while Bogart is in the background. The film was shot primarily on the Warner Brothers Burbank Studios lot in order to keep costs down. The beach and hotel exterior were constructed on the Warner Brothers back lot. The interior scenes were filmed on a soundstage, and the boat scenes were filmed in Soundstage 21, a huge indoor water tank. Exterior shots of the hurricane were taken from stock footage used in Night Unto Night, a Ronald Reagan melodrama which Warner Brothers also produced in 1948. Filming took 78 days. The boat used by Rocco's gang to depart Key Largo with Bogart's character at the helm is named the Santana, which was also the name of Bogart's personal 55-foot sailing yacht. And if you read or listen to Lauren Bacall's autobiography, Being Myself and Then Some, she talks about those sailing trips on the Santana. And Bogart never lost that. She said he always loved going out on the water, you know, And so there we have it. We have Perry Mason, this film noir television event. I I urge all of you to watch it. It's on HBO. It's on, I think it's on DVD. It's on um, Amazon Prime. And then Key Largo. You can look for it on Turner Classic Movies. You can look for it on iTunes. You can even look for the DVD. So let's see if Perry Mason is out on DVD. Oh, that's the TV series. But we're looking for the HBO series. And I love doing these episodes with you. You know, ah, here we go. Comes out December 1st. Perry Mason, season one. Such a great... And I mean... This is not your grandparents, Perry Mason. You know, yeah. Some people are upset that it's it's not a a, cho- a family production. Well, it's HBO. You know, mm. yeah. Now Key Largo, Key Largo. As I've said, this is the last. This is the last movie. You know what happened was, Bogart and Bacall were going to do another movie. Okay, and they were doing, I think, you know, costume ideas for it. And that's when Bogart discovered that he was sick, and he ultimately died of his disease a year later in 1957. These films are amazing, and yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna categorize Perry Mason as that film for TV. <laughs> Because it is it is episodic television, it is film noir at its best. So think about that. Think about the shadows and Perry Mason shot in color. 
Think of the shadows. Think of the situations. Think of the mystery intrigue of Perry Mason, the HBO series. Think of the shadows and the black and white photography of Key Largo. These two war veterans. We can't stress that enough. So as always, happy Veterans Day to the veterans that I know and love and to all of you out there. Unpleasant dreams.